Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Nikki, we are finishing the book of Daniel today. We actually are. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard for me to believe. I am thrilled that we did this. Me too. It's a new book. Like like I said to you a minute ago, I, Daniel is now in my Bible. Yeah, <laughs> we took him back. We took him back. <laughs> yeah. But before we talk through the last part of Daniel 12, I want to talk again about the coming conference. If you haven't signed up to participate in the FAF conference, which will be February 17 to 19, this is your time to do it. You can either do it online or in person. And I want to talk just a little bit with you, Nikki, about why in-person is so much better. Although online is actually good. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm glad we have that option. Mm -hmm. But why would you say you need to come in person if you can? The very first time that I attended a former Adventist fellowship conference, I had no idea how many former Adventists there were. I had no idea how many people had gone before me. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how many people were questioning like I was. And to go to a place where we're all coming together, people who've been out for ever, mm-hmm. people who were never in, but who know the word of God and who have come and put their arms around us. Mm-hmm. And then other people who are asking the same questions I am. So I don't feel stupid being in that setting. It felt so safe, yeah. so comfortable. And I am a hopeless introvert. You know this about me yes. calling. Yes. It was actually scary for me to go, mm-hmm. but I went. Part of what was so significant for me, other than the talks, they were incredible. Go look up the 2010 Former Adventist (laughs) Fellowship Conference on YouTube. It was great. But it was the moments in between sessions, the moments in between breakouts that I still think about in my mind. I remember one time in particular, I'll share a time. I was standing with a group of young women, Mm -hmm. early 20s, and we were talking about hell. Uh Of course. That comes up, doesn't it? At the conference. Yeah. And several of the women there were Christians. They'd been Christian their whole life. One was raised Christian, went into Adventism, and then came out and found this group. And I just remember saying, yeah, but why would a loving God send anybody to hell? And one of the women turned and looked at me, and she just looked kind of horrified. It's just surprised. She said, why would he not? Wow. And the emotion on her face, it was like it sent ripples through me. I don't even know how to describe it. I get it. It planted a seed of dissonance. I needed to know what she knew about God. How can she call that love? I think that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about what we're doing this this year, you know, talking about the doctrine of God's love and how it manifests in all of these other attributes of God and ways he interacts with us. The other thing I would say too, is one of the women that was walking around with me, she was an amazing blessing. She was helping me with my daughter at Uh every turn. I had a little nine month old, I think at the Uh time. She kept answering my questions. I'd have questions. She said, well, that's because they have another Jesus. Well, that's because they have a false gospel. And it was repeated all weekend and it felt shocking. Yes, I I couldn't decide if I was intrigued or offended. Right. I didn't know what to think. But those moments where I was around people who were completely convicted by what they believed, it drove their life. It drove the confidence they spoke with. Mm -hmm. And it drove their compassion. And being around that 
was a huge part of what helped me and created in me a deep curiosity to read my Bible and know more. So that combined with the talks was huge. Yes. I love the conferences, meeting people that I've never met, meeting old friends that I've met before, Mm -hmm. coming together, the shared stories, the shared background. And you know, I'll be honest, and I think that many of the people who are listening to this podcast will be able to understand and relate to this. Coming from Adventism into Christianity gives us a common background that's a little bit like a soldier who goes through the foxhole in a war with another soldier and Mm -hmm. they kind of like lifetime bond that's deeper than words. That's kind of what we have with one another Mm -hmm. when we find the Lord, really know the gospel. And we have come from this background that almost nobody understands if they haven't been in it. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing experience. And I think that's one reason why even the talks are so unique because most of the talks, not all, but most of the talks are given by people who have been Adventist before or by people who have been closely associated with Adventists and have had to learn to understand them from an outside perspective. So there's a real understanding of the background that we share and being able to talk about doctrine and talk about the Bible using a vocabulary that we understand. And that's just it. We function as interpreters, don't we? We do. It's hard to explain to other people, but there's this language barrier between Adventists and Christian, and neither of us know anything about it Mm -hmm. until we start to learn about it. That's right. And so having someone there who says, oh, I know what you're saying and what you're asking. I know what they're trying to explain to you. Let me help. And to get in there and help the Christian know what the Adventist is saying, help the Adventist know what the Christian's saying, and show them in Scripture you know, where they can find answers. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And one of the reasons I think most of us feel so alone, like, is there anybody else like me out there? Yeah. (laughs) That's common to all of us. Mm -hmm. We all have a feeling of being terminally unique until we suddenly find ourselves with others who are in the same boat. And you know what? If you're in that place, you're not alone. Mm -mm. There are many who are questioning and coming to understand that the Bible says something different than they thought it did. And it's an amazing, exciting, terrifying, exhilarating, dreadful, and awesome time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we all get it. Yeah. We get it. I do want to say one other thing for Christians who are listening, who've never been Adventist. If you've ever wanted to go on a mission trip, come to our conference. (laughs) I agree. Because there is nothing like seeing somebody understand the gospel, somebody who really wants to understand the gospel. When those lights come on, when the Lord opens their eyes, it is the most exciting It's the best thing in the world. It's amazing. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. thing. You'll get information you can take back into your community and know how to minister to the Adventists in your life. It's an amazing thing to see the the aha moments, just to see the expressions in the eyes. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. (laughs) So if you haven't registered, please do. And as Nikki mentioned, our conference topic this year is God's Love Exposed. And we're going to talk about God's love biblically as it relates to doctrines we learned in a unique way in Adventism, doctrines such as resurrection, 
It's not recreation. God's love exposed in hell. God's love is not annihilation and how we can know that. God's love does not involve a great controversy. God's love does involve revealing himself. He takes responsibility for revealing himself. We don't have to go searching for him. We only have to believe when he shows himself to us. God's love exposed in family. So, please do register and we look forward to seeing you. So now, Nikki, as we start this last part of Daniel 12, the last part being most of it, <laughs> Daniel 12, 4 to 13, as you look back at Daniel, before we start talking about this last section, what stands out in your mind about Daniel? What have you learned or what has your experience been or what impression do you retain? What has changed for you since studying Daniel in this podcast? Daniel has been an excellent source for witnessing the sovereignty of God. Yeah. I knew he was sovereign and that he was in charge of all things. I knew that. I had learned that from studying scripture in other places. Daniel puts that on display in mm-hmm. such a unique way, beginning with the exile and extending till the end of Jacob's time of trouble. Yes. Seeing all of the literal fulfillments in history, even the literal fulfillment of Christ coming, seeing how God has had his hand over everything, ordained everything, worked in everything, and taken care of his people. He took care of Daniel in Babylon. I know. That has really struck me. He took care of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Seeing his faithfulness and knowing that when he says, it is decreed... He means it. Yeah. And I walk away going, yeah, my father's strong. He's got this. He's got me. He's got everything that's happening around me. And boy, do we live in a crazy time. Yes. And so, I don't know. I I just feel even more secure and confident marching into whatever is ahead for me. And I feel more of an urgency to help my kids understand this sovereign God of history. And I think that related to that, one of the things that I take with me is the absolute veracity of the words of Scripture. Yeah. I can't say enough how much I have had to depend on believing that the words mean what the words say, that God gave the words because He is the Word, and He wants us to know the words He gave us. And I don't have to be the one to figure out what He meant. I just have to read the words. And if I don't understand everything He says, that's okay. He hasn't made it completely clear. But context is everything. Words matter. And it holds up even in a book of prophecy like this. This has come from reading the words And when I have needed to check myself and see if others have seen the words like I've seen, I have used commentators that exposit the Bible the way I've learned to read it, Mm -hmm. using the words, using the historical grammatical method of hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. So, no, this is scripture revealing that it is reliable because God gave it. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. I feel more confident than ever in that. And I feel grateful and it's a little exhilarating to know that the Bible really can be pressed very hard mm-hmm. and it doesn't crumble. 
No, it's incredibly compatible with the entire message from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's amazing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, Nikki, would you read Daniel 12 for us? We're going to discuss 4 through 13, but just for context's sake, we're going to read the first three chapters, which we talked about last week, and we'll just have the context as we go into 4 through 13. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise... And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever." But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Oh my goodness. Daniel has just heard the future history of the world (laughs) for his people. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to verse 4 and talk through some of this. In verse 4, the man in linen who is explaining to Daniel what is going to happen says to him, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Well, as an Adventist, I heard that explained this way. There will be just great advances in science and technology and all branches of learning, and people will be traveling and moving about on the earth, and there will be restlessness among the people, and everybody will just be bustling about with lots of knowledge increasing. How did you understand that verse in Adventism? Same thing. I actually think that verse was used to talk about the sin of television. Oh, interesting, of course. Having a TV in our home where we would have so much access to so much information through the news, and this hmm. was before the internet. <laughs> yeah, and there was no foresight of the internet, was no. there? <laughs> no, and that was just a, a sign that knowledge was increasing. Well, Nikki, 
what does the language suggest that this passage actually means? It was a little surprising to me to learn this. I actually looked it up in different sources, and they all agreed. How did you come to understand this passage? Well, it was a very new perspective. I hadn't heard this before. So the context is that he needs to preserve the book to seal it up, to conceal them, because it's for the end of time. Yeah. And then at that time. Yes. And remember the context is the tribulation and all of the stuff that's going on. That's going to be happening to Israel. Mm -hmm. That's 70th week. So you think of Israel, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So the context is that this is a reference to the time of the great tribulation and chapter 11 verses 35 and 40 give that phrase its context, Mm -hmm. the end of time. Yeah. So at that time, people will be running to and fro trying to understand what's going on. And they're likely going to look at the book of Daniel and their knowledge is going to be increased because they're going to see in scripture. It's for them to understand. It's for a particular audience. Yes. What's interesting to me that I had no clue until I did look this up in several different commentators. And it was really quite fascinating to me, Nikki, that they all agreed. I mean, I looked it up in several. I mean, I listened to John MacArthur. I looked it up in McGee. I looked it up in Leon Wood. I listened to S. Lewis Johnson. They all had the same understanding of this. And they mentioned, and this is so fascinating, that phrase running to and fro and knowledge shall be increased is used other places in scripture. And you get a sense of what it means. It's not just like running around the earth like I had thought. For example, in Jeremiah 5.1, Jeremiah gets this message from the Lord, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her, meaning Israel. So in this passage, Jeremiah is getting that same phrase, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, as in find the information, find the truth, find someone who understands and believes. It's not running about because they're frenetic and overworked and have the transportation to do it like I had pictured it. No, this is about seeking something that's truthful. Second Chronicles 16.9 also says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. So in this passage, it is God's eyes that run to and fro through the earth looking for somebody who's blameless, somebody who trusts him, somebody who believes in him. He's looking for something specific that relates to truth from God. And finally, in Amos 8, 11 to 12, God said this to Amos, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The pattern here is that to to and fro is about seeking knowledge. And the way that I understood it as an Adventist was about having knowledge thrown at me, you know, advances in society and they're going to try to deceive you with all of this stuff. That's not what this is about. That's not the context in scripture. No, when this is used. It's about content. The context in scripture is about seeking knowledge from God. So, 
it's fascinating to me that this man in linen, this Christ figure, is telling Daniel to seal up the book, to shut it up until the end of time. He's not telling him to try to hide the book and make it inaccessible. What is he actually saying by saying this? Preserve it. Right. It's for later. It's for later. So keep it safe. Keep it safe where it can't get destroyed because it's for later and the time will come when people will be looking for truth from the Lord. Doesn't this make you think about the the parts in the New Testament that talk about how you know, the angels have longed to understand these things. Yes, it's in First Peter. It's interesting that it says that it was told to them that the person that about whom they were prophesying, meaning Jesus, mm-hmm. all of that was to come on the people in the New Testament times. They were being told something that was coming, but they were longing to look into it. They were looking to see who it was they were prophesying about, and it was revealed to them that it was for later. It was for people who would come later. And this is an example of that. Yes, it is. J. Vernon McGee had this comment that I thought was really applicable for us today as we read Daniel and we read that Jesus or this Christ figure, this apparently pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, is saying to Daniel that people will be looking for knowledge from God. And McGee says this, in view of the fact that we are in the interval immediately preceding this period, and I'll just stop there and remind us all, that at the end of 1135, we ended 1135 in Daniel with the atrocities of Antiochus Epiphanes. It is 1136 where we begin reading about the coming Antichrist. So, we're in that period between 35 and 36 that's not actually foretold in this prophecy, which is for Daniel's people. But we, the church, are standing in that period. So, that's what McGee is talking about when he says, in view of the fact that we are in the interval immediately preceding this period, it is difficult to know just how much we understand. Since so many good men differ today on the interpretation of prophecy, it would seem to indicate that there is much that we do not understand. All of this will be opened up when we reach this particular period. This is the reason we need to keep our eyes upon one thing, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a quote from Titus 2.13. So, I just wanted to read that because this is our bottom line. We don't fully know exactly how this will be fulfilled, and nobody does. Mm -hmm. But there's hints, and we can talk about those hints, and we can be prepared, but we keep our eyes on Jesus. That's our blessed hope. We who believe Him and who are in Christ, our blessed hope is Him coming and taking us to be with Him forever. And that will happen Mm -hmm. at the time God has appointed. We don't know it, but it will happen. And it's not something that we divide over. Adventism segregated itself apart from all of Christianity because of their very wild ideas about last days. But in Christianity, we don't do that. No. We're the body of Christ. I've heard I've heard men on different sides of the issue say, It's okay, brother. Neither of us know what's gonna happen, but I'll explain it to you on the way up. Yes. It's it's really, it's okay uh-huh. for us to see it differently. And I, I think sometimes former Adventists will become alarmed when people they respect understand something 
that they disagree with. And we don't have to. This isn't the gospel. That's right. The gospel is the Mm non-negotiable. Jesus died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to scripture. That is non-negotiable. And that, ironically, was the thing Adventism got wrong. Yeah. But they Mm -hmm. insisted everybody see eschatology their way. And that's not biblical. It's a secondary issue, not completely clear, but we can bring a literal hermeneutic to the reading of Scripture and make some partial sense of it. That's what we'll try to do. So, along with running to and fro was what Jesus apparently, I'm just going to say Jesus, even though we aren't completely sure it could have been a magnificent angel, but we think it was Jesus, said to Daniel, that knowledge shall be increased. So, contextually, if people are running to and fro looking for truth, what is the knowledge that is to be increased in this context? Well, in this context, they're going to come to understand what's going on. They're going to come to understand God's Word. And the fact that this is connected to His command for Daniel to preserve this letter, to me, it implies that this letter will be a part of what increases their knowledge. Because they will seek for a word from God, and they will get it in Daniel's pen. And they will have some understanding of prophecy because of that. Now, it is interesting that as the church has progressed over the last, you know, 2,000 plus years, there have been different time periods when different aspects of biblical truth have been focused on by church leaders, scholars, and preachers. As the end times approach, it seems as if the study of prophecy has increased. Now, I find it really interesting that this is not just something that one person has said or that we've surmised from living our short lives, but other people have noticed this in the progress of history as well. Nikki, would you mind reading the quote that our pastor Gary Enrig gave us several years ago when we were asking about some of this stuff? Sure. He said, The fact is, as James Orr showed in a book called The Progress of Dogma, certainly issues have come to the forefront in Christian history at different points in history. So the deity of Christ and the Trinity were of central importance in the early centuries, and then concerns shifted to the nature of the person of Christ. What did it mean that he was God and man? Issues of the nature of the church formed the next period, with sad conclusions. And soteriology came to the fore during the Reformation. Eschatology wasn't on the front burners for most until the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, I remember when I read this little um, paragraph from Gary several years ago, and it was like a light went on in my head. I had never thought about the fact that the doctrinal core issues of Christianity have progressed, not that they've changed in Scripture, not that their definitions have changed, but that the attention given to them has progressed over history. That had never occurred to me, and yet when I look back on it, at the things that I've learned, it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, J. Vernon McGee talked about the same thing, and he said this, There is a serious study of prophecy being made by many scholars today, which has not been done in the past. Different great doctrines of the church have been studied and developed during different periods of the history of the church. At the very beginning, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture was pretty well established. Also, the doctrine of the deity of Christ and of redemption. Other doctrines were developed down through history. 
Today, I think we're seeing more study of prophecy than ever before. With that being said, it's not a surprise that more people are turning to try to figure out what's going on. As they see things happening in the world that they don't understand, they're going, okay, what does the Bible say? Yeah, and as Christians, it's our privilege to spend the rest of our lives learning. Absolutely. And, and so we have different things that that we are driven to in the Word of God, and that will be true forever. Forever. And it's rather exciting for me to realize that that is the case. We're never going to come to the end of mm-hmm. God's will and His Word. Can I just squeeze in here a comment on this? As I think about these different phases of discovery, I, I'm i saddened about something. Mm-hmm. So during the time of the Reformation, you had Martin Luther, who was reading the Bible, translating the Bible, and getting it in everybody's hands. And through reading in a language they understood, yeah. they came to understand the gospel. And they dug into that. And different people, different leaders came up during that time, and they began to explain it eloquently. Many had the gift of teaching. And because they were able to explain it and teach it from Scripture, they would get credit for things that have always been in the Word of God. Yes. So when we talk over the years in this ministry about the sovereignty of God, We've had people come down and say, you're Calvinist. Right. And I didn't know who John Calvin was until people started accusing me of being a Calvinist. I know. And we've gotten a little bit of, like you mentioned earlier, pushback about our perspective on Daniel with this, using this hermeneutic, oh, you followed Darby. I had to look him up. I had no idea who he was. All of these truths that people focus on down through time, they've always been in the original text of Scripture. This isn't new, and we're not the first people to read it and interpret it this way. Just to piggyback on Mm -hmm. what you said, one of the things that has bothered me over the years is that when people disagree with the way I talk about something or the way Life Assurance Ministries interprets or explains something, sometimes people will say, you need to read what, and then they'll name a reformer Mm -hmm. or a Puritan Mm -hmm. said about this matter. And while I have great respect for the reformers and the Puritans and know that they were sent by God to help the church progress to where we are today, they're not the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, why don't we just go back to the New Testament to establish our ground rules Mm -hmm. and to establish our baseline of understanding? These people, including you and me, Nikki, including the teachers who have taught us well, none of us are the Word of God. Mm-mm. We are people who've been changed by the Word of God, and we can share how it's changed us, but we're not the Word of God. The Word of God is in the Bible, and that's what we stand on. There has to be something that we can all go back to and agree, this is unchanging, immovable, and true. Jesus, the Word, gave us these words so that we would understand It's his way of communicating with us. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to verses 5 through 7. What happens in 5 through 7? He says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing on this bank of the river and on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, time.
times and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So suddenly he's got angels that yes. have appeared standing on either side of the bank. We have this one dressed in linen who matches the description of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter one. And they need information that that one dressed in linen has, and yes. they don't have, and they ask him, they're curious. They want to know, yeah. <laughs> when is this going to end? And they're asking very specifically about this tribulation, this this difficult time that's going to come. Yes, They want to know, when is the end of these wonders? That's right. Now, one thing that's really fascinating to me about this is that the man in linen has been here with Daniel. Mm-hmm. He's been the one talking to him for the past couple of chapters. But suddenly there are these angels, and isn't it interesting that when they ask, the man in linen raises his hands to heaven and swears by God who lives forever. Now, what's fascinating to me is that suddenly there are two angels who are witnessing this Christ figure make an oath, (laughs) vowing in the name of God, the unchangeable one, this will last three and a half years. Now, in the law, which Daniel understood well, it was established how an oath or a vow was to be made. There had to be two or three witnesses for a vow to be valid. As it says in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. What's interesting here is that they're asking about this time of atrocity that's coming. How long will it last? And the man vows in the name of God that it will only last three and a half years. And Daniel wasn't sufficient as the single witness. This is a vow that God is making to Israel and for all of us who read it, that we can take this to the bank. This is true. Sworn in the name of God with two witnesses. No, with three. There's two angels and there's Daniel. So, right in terms of the law, the legal requirements for this being a true declaration are established and we can know that this is what it means. And it's fascinating when you think about the fact that God swore by himself his promise to Abraham as well. In Hebrews chapter 6, 13 and 14, it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. There isn't a Christian I know who thinks that that's a conditional promise to Abraham. It is going to happen. God swore by himself. Now, whether or not this figure over the waters represents Jesus, people will differ. But the word of God is inspired by God. And this man was sent by God and allowed to swear by God before these witnesses that this is going to happen. It is going to happen. And it will only happen for a time, times, and half a time. And during that time, there will be a shattering of the power of the holy people. But it has an end, a fixed end. Yes. I think that's amazing that we can know this for sure. We don't have to go, well, we think that's what this means. Because these numbers have already been established in Daniel. The length of time, the length of these atrocities, this has already been established. And every time this time, times, and half a time has been used in Daniel, it has referred to the same amount of time 
three and a half years. Now, if anybody is wondering how we arrive at that, I would just give you a few verses from the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11, we see that there are two witnesses for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. In chapter 12, verse 6, we see that God will protect the people of Israel for 1260 days. In chapter 12, verse 14, they go into the wilderness and will be cared for a time, times, and half a time, which correlates the way of saying it with 1260 days, which is three and a half years. And then in chapter 13, verse 5, power will be given to the Antichrist for 42 months, which is three and a half years. So it's very consistent. And the times mean the same thing. They're not symbolic. No, scripture interprets scripture. After he swears that this will take place and last for a time, times, and half a time, what does Daniel ask and what is the answer? Well, Daniel is still confused. He doesn't understand this. And he says, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? But the answer he got was, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. He let him know this isn't for you. You don't have to understand this. When the time comes for people to understand, we're told in verse 10, they will. I think it's kind of interesting because in a way, he's telling Daniel to not fret. Let it rest in the hands of God. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to figure it out. He can leave it in God's hands and let God unfold the future. Mm -hmm. So in 10, what does he say to Daniel will happen in the end? He does let him know that many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand But those who have insight will understand. And to me, this helps clarify the text earlier about many running to and fro. Yes. And they're going to come to understanding. It will be those who trust God who come to an understanding of what's happening. There are three principles that seem to prevail here, regardless of the time frame that we're working in. This seems to be a consistent set of principles within God's will. First of all, many will be purified. People will come to Christ and be counted righteous because God is in charge of our salvation. God calls people to himself. So no matter what's going on, there will be people purified as they come to know and trust Christ. Number two, the wicked will not understand. And this has always been true. Natural man does not and will not understand God's ways or plans. God's ways are foolishness to them. And No matter what's going on, even if God is revealing or making it clear where the truth can be found and known, the wicked will not look there. They will not trust it. And finally, people of insight will understand. And just as you said, the Holy Spirit will guide believers into all truth. And I think that you're absolutely right that sealing up this book and keeping it safe until the time of the end is for those who are looking for God's will and word and truth, and they will find it and know when the time comes. Mm-hmm. This verse does answer the accusation that's thrown at people who read prophecy with the historical grammatical hermeneutic. They will say, I've heard that we believe that all of biological national Israel is going to be saved. Right. But this text says many, 
Yes. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. And in Zechariah 13, 8, we read there that not all shall be purified. But I love what John MacArthur said. He said, the many of Daniel becomes the all of Paul. Oh, I love that. There's no point in scripture where we're told that people will be saved without believing in Christ. No, never. From the beginning, when Eve believed the Lord, when he said he was going to send someone to crush the the head of the serpent, from the time of Eve until the time when history closes, human history closes, it will always be about trusting God. In fact, speaking of Eve, it was the fact that she didn't believe and trust God's word that she got into the problem she got into with the snake. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's discussing God's word and allowing the snake to put questions in her mind about it instead of believing it and saying, no, this is what God has said. This is what I will do. She allowed herself to entertain doubts about it and the rest is history. But then when God did show up and promise her what he was going to do, she did trust him. Mm-hmm. She did believe. So in verses 11 to 12, what do we learn? <laughs> in verse 11, he says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. We've already read about this. We see that this is related to the Antichrist breaking his covenant and the abomination of desolation is set up. The Antichrist desecrates the temple. And so the end of that is at 1290 days. But then he says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. (laughs) And I'm not good with math, but those numbers don't match. (laughs) No. First, he said this desolation will last 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's what we talked about in the last set of verses. Now we see that from the time the regular sacrifice is abolished until the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's 30 more days than Mm -hmm. he said the tribulation would last. And then we go to 1,335 days, and we don't know what these numbers actually mean. It's another 45 days. It's another 45 days. Well, I'll tell you what, I really liked how John MacArthur broke this down. He said, we can't know anything for sure, but this is what makes sense to him. He said, the 1260 days is until the end of tribulation. Mm -hmm. Then there's another 30 days for completing the purging, the separation of the sheep and goats. And that leaves 45 days more for blessing. And he said that this is when we enter into the blessedness of the establishment of the kingdom. He's speculating. Yes. But still, one thing we can know, and I think this is so interesting, it was actually something Richard said while we were talking with him about all of this before we came in here to record. He said, so we're getting numbers that are taking us into the time of the millennium. And I hadn't thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. The end of the tribulation is 1260 days, that three and a half years of that last bit of terror that's going to come on the nation of Israel and the world. Then now we have an extra 30 and then an extra total of 45 days, which takes us into this next phase. And we don't know what it all is, but... We can tell from the words what some things might involve. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15 to 18, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Isn't that an interesting parenthetical 
mm-hmm. thing for Jesus to say. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Well, Nikki, we already know that many of these prophecies are telescoping in nature. So it's likely that when Jesus gave this prophecy, there was a near future fulfillment that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. We know that the temple was desecrated. It was destroyed by Titus, the Roman. Yeah, I I know that this has been applied to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And yet there wasn't an abomination of desolation set up in the temple right before that happened. Not that we know of. That is something I've thought of many times over the years. You know, the interesting thing about this is I'm beginning to see now how Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 describe the horrors of Antiochus Epiphanes and his desecration of the temple. And I'm beginning to see the ways in which Antiochus Epiphanes really is a foreshadowing of whatever the horrors of the Antichrist will be Mm -hmm. in a kind of specific way. Apparently, there is going to be an actual desecration of an actual temple. Mm-hmm. that occurs. That is something different from what we know that Titus did. We know Titus and his soldiers invaded Jerusalem, burned the temple, the gold melted into the stones. It was the most dreadful destruction imaginable. But we aren't told that they erected any kind of an image or sacrificed a pig like Antiochus Epiphanes did. And when Daniel describes the last day trouble for Israel, it says that it will be a time of great tribulation such as never has been before, nor ever will be again. Exactly. I wasn't alive in AD 70, but I know the Holocaust was horrifying. Yes. And this is worse than all that put together, apparently. Now, many will say, but where's the temple? And you know what? That isn't completely explained. Remember in Daniel 9, it was talking about the king that was to come would make a covenant with the many, and then he would break Mm -hmm. it halfway through. The Antichrist will likely come and make some sort of covenant of peace with the nation of Israel that will give them the freedom to take back their temple mount, to enjoy the worship that they felt that they should be enjoying all these years that they haven't been able to freely enjoy because they haven't been able to build a temple where a mosque has stood, but they will be able to restore that apparently. Now, I can't say for sure if and when and how this will happen, but that seems to be suggested in the idea that there will be peace made with Israel and that they will be able to worship freely in their own land on their own temple mount. And if that's true, there will be a temple there. Then in these last three and a half years, it says here very clearly, he will do the abomination of desecration in that temple. And it will echo what Antiochus Epiphanes did. So one of the things that was interesting to me was listening to MacArthur talk about some of the kickback he gets. Yes. Which isn't surprising. We all get kickback, right? Mm -hmm. So people will say to him, you just can't believe the Bible when it tries to be specific. And I would say that's that's an arbitrary comment because people will get very specific where they want to. Yeah. But he says, God is good at generalities, but he has trouble with specifics. (laughs) You can believe the minutiae as you can believe the general things. Our sovereign God, who's in charge of history, was also in charge of scripture. And those numbers aren't arbitrary. Yes. And like another commentator I read said, we can't assume that these 
1,335 days are symbolic because they're way too close together to really signify something vastly different from the 1,260 days. Plus, all the other numbers in Daniel have been specific and actual. Yeah, we have the man in linen swearing by God that it will only be for a time, times, and half a time. This has specific meaning. We may not know exactly what it is, but it has specific meaning we can trust. Right. So whatever this is, this is about something that happens right after the end of this terrible time of tribulation, and something real is going to happen that will be revealed when it happens. Now, it was interesting to me just to think in reference to what MacArthur said. I read another commentator who agreed with MacArthur, by the way, on this, and he was a little more detailed. He said, suppose that that extra 30 days from the 1260 to the 1290 was about separating the sheep and the goats, as you have said, to decide who will go into the millennial kingdom and who won't. There'll be a time of judgment, a time of sorting out who is coming into the kingdom and who isn't. And he said, we have no idea, but the next set of days might actually involve setting up the kingdom. Establishing the borders of Israel, establishing the administration of the government prior to the full operation and that the saints will be coming into this and will be brought into the fullness of the millennial kingdom. So we don't know. We'll wait and see. (laughs) But these are possibilities and we can at least know that the numbers mean something. Yeah. And we can read in Revelation chapter 20 about this judgment, and then the millennial kingdom. Right. This passage ends by the Christ figure saying to Daniel, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, what does he tell Daniel? He says, as for you, go your way to the end. And it lets him know that he's not a part of this generation that he's been given information on. He's going to go his way. He's going to live out his days. He says, you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is one of those Old Testament texts, very few of them, but one of them that exposes the reality of the resurrection. Yes. It's interesting that he tells him that he'll be raised And apparently, he will be raised with the Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation, which we talked about last week, because at the very beginning of this chapter, in verse 2, Daniel had been told, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And we talked about the fact that Daniel is being told about a resurrection of the people of Israel right before the millennium, right at the end of the tribulation. And this is apparently the same resurrection that Daniel's being told about now. He can sleep, he can rest, but he'll be raised to receive his inheritance along with the others who were raised, along with the other Old Testament saints who will be raised at the end of the tribulation. They will be resurrected then and given their inheritance in the millennial kingdom. So we are much closer, Nikki, to this time of tribulation than Daniel was. And it's interesting that this book is in God's eternal word. It's here for us. And we don't fully understand how to interpret it. We don't fully know all the details. And you know what? I'm okay if I learn that some of the things that I have thought as I interpret this turn out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. God's bigger than my head. Oh, his plan is always better. (laughs) 
It's always better, Mm -hmm. but it's fascinating to me that he's given us enough here that we can actually get our hands around and see that there are other places in scripture that support what Daniel is hearing. Mm -hmm. And there's more evidence in the New Testament that past the death of Christ towards AD 90, John was given even more revelation about some of the things Daniel saw. So we're expected to read this. We're expected, we aren't expected to necessarily understand it all, but we're expected to read it. And as things happen, the Lord will teach us and lead us into all truth. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, just for a moment, is talk a little bit about what Daniel does not teach. There are various views on how to interpret the passages that we've looked at over these last many weeks. It does not teach that you have to be a vegetarian to be savable. Right. It does not teach that there's an investigative judgment going on for the saved. Oh, so true. That's nowhere in here. I mean, not even not even a, a passage of scripture that could be confused. Right. It's just not there. It's not there. This book was not given for people to use for their own purposes, to establish a 19th century religion, and to develop an eschatology that has no consistency in the rest of the Bible. This book was given to Daniel. The Aramaic parts were revealing the future for the Gentile nations. The Hebrew parts were reviewing the future for the nation of Israel. And we can know that. And I find it so comforting that God reveals himself and his will to his people. Those who don't trust him, who don't believe him, as he says right here to Daniel, they won't understand. But those with insight, those who know there is a God, those who know that he has revealed himself and that he has shown us the truth, that he has sent his son to redeem us from our own sin, Those who trust him will know what they need to know as time goes on, and they know they can trust this book and they don't have to fear it. And if you have not trusted the God who appeared to Daniel and told him, this time will last for 1,260 days as he raised his hands to heaven and swore by God who lives forever, if you have not trusted this man, this God, the son who came to take your sin and to redeem you from yourself and from the sins over which you have no power to be good. This is the time to do it. He is going to come again and he is going to bring all of this suffering to an end and he will save you and he will protect you from all that is to come if you are his. If you haven't trusted his death for your sin, his burial, and his resurrection to break the curse of sin into which you were born, this is the time to do it. Our God is faithful. He will never not keep his promises, and he will save you and rescue you and place you in Christ if you believe. Join us next week as we do a retrospective over our experience with the book of Daniel. And please don't forget to go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our conference. And we hope to see you there. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. 
For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Thank you.